Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Hal Kos and I'm a new host here at New Books in Poetry. Today I'm speaking to poet Gemma Borg about her new collection, Wilder, from the Pavilion Poetry Series at Liverpool University Press. Gemma won the inaugural Gingo Prize in 2018 and the Rialto RSPB Nature and Place Competition in 2017. Her first collection, The Illuminated World, was published by Eyewear in 2014. Wilder is a collection of dense, attentive and finely balanced poems which dig into our sense of place and non-place, our belonging and our bewilderment in the natural world. It traces a poetics on the threshold between the human and the non-human, between the world that's kept out and the world that's kept in. Um, and I'm really excited to be talking about it today with Gemma. Um, hi Gemma, how are you? Hi there, I'm good. It's really good to talk to you. Wonderful. So we usually start here um, by asking a very simple question, which is, uh, how did you come to write and keep writing poetry? Mm. I I really like that you were asking, how do you keep writing as well? Because, <laughs> you know, I think there's persistence is a really big part of this. Um, uh, you know, it's a long road, poetry, I think. It's, it's the long haul. Um, but, you know, there have been two things for me from, you know, for as far back as I can remember in my life. And one was writing and the other one was science. And the two things were, you know, of sort of equal interest to me. And they would sort of feed each other, really. Um, and, you know, I chose to go through with science, um, which was a lot to do with the fact that just at my school, you couldn't do both. You know, you had to choose. Um, couldn't do English and sciences. So I ended up being a scientist. And, um, you know, there was a lot about that, which was uh, your discovery. You know, what can you find out about the world that, that your senses alone or your sight can't tell you? And that sort of um, sort of opening up the mystery of the world, I guess, and the, and the universe. And, you know, sort of that kind of has remained with me and I sort of want to write about that you know that sort of um uh being open uh to the world in certain ways but I think the other thing that you know I always did right through was was write and um there were various things I used to write stories but I started journaling very seriously when I was a teenager and you know that would be not just diary stuff it would be quotes and ideas and all sorts of things and I developed this kind of thing that I called skinny prose which was sort of indented text you know that was I guess really um drafts of poems really because you know it's an awareness of the of the words on the page space and lineation you know, yeah, yeah 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 which was like the first step and I think um you know it's it's I have to say probably doing looking at Shakespeare for the first time at school, um, we didn't talk about meter, we didn't talk about any of those things, but um, I just remember hearing the sound, you know, and the sound of obviously is the iambic pentameter, um, and that was just like this earworm that just sort of got in, and, you know, I just kept hearing it, kept hearing it, and um, I started to try and write with that rhythm, and it was sort of one of those things just kind of got hold of me, so I think, you know, back uh, 15, 16, I was writing quite a lot of poetry at that point, you know, completely um, sort of untutored, you know, completely raw, uh, not really knowing what I was doing. And I, I carried on, you know, writing was just really so important to me. I always thought I would do science and writing mm -hmm. and that those two things would be um, part of my life. And, you know, you sort of think, oh, maybe I'll do um, popularizing science or something like that but actually 
um, I did go through trying to do some of those things. And eventually, you know, it's poetry that came back eventually. Um, and I kind of thought, my God, you know, I need to just write poetry. That's where I am. And, um, you know, I didn't look back after that, but it took, you know, I was 30 when that happened, which is sort of that I'm not going to, you know, do these these other jobs anymore. And I was doing a lot of sort of, you know, I suppose drier stuff, you know, trying to um, write about science for, for um, grant applications, things like this. Right. Um, yeah. You know, and it sort of, um, I was quite good at it, but it was just the, the, the words which called me back, I think. And that's it. So I went, thought, right, got to see how this goes. But the, and the, I just want to ask about that kind of coming back or refinding poetry in particular, if you like, because there's something about these poems in Wilder. They're incredibly careful in their craft. I mean, it's, it's sort of it sounds almost uh, it's easy to say that. But if you if you read through this collection, the formally they're so tightly balanced and kind of um thoughtful about how they're laid out on the page so was there kind of which is why i'm i'm doubtful about the kind of oh then i just refound poetry i imagine there was a really serious <laughs> application of yourself to yeah uh, to, to this the study of 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 poetry as well i mean it seems it seems that way that's what jumps out at me on reading the collection yes and uh, that precisely is what happened okay. which is a kind of thought well uh, if if I'm going to write poetry, then I need to to really study it. Um, mm -hmm. And I was fortunate actually to. So what I did, I think initially I was I just kind of went to a creative writing um, group and we did look, looked at fiction and we looked at poetry and looked at all sorts of things. And that was when I realised, okay, so this is poetry really that that that's my thing. And I was fortunate in um, working almost immediately with uh, the poet Mimi Calvati, who's a British Iranian, um, Iranian poet, very versed on form, you know, really understanding form. And she used to do this wonderful course called Versification, which was over a whole year. So I joined that and, you know, go, went from knowing very little in terms of sort of formal, what was involved with formal work, you know, sort of massive learning curve through that year. And I'm really grateful for that because I did feel, I think, hard to say why, maybe it was because my first sort of encounter was with, you know, that strong encounter with iambic pentameter and rhythm and sound and wanting to understand how that worked. So for me, understanding about form was really, really important to begin with and, um, you know, did... I suppose the beginning of my apprenticeship, if you like, to poetry was very much based on, um, you know, practicing forms, trying to understand forms, trying to understand, um, I mean, not not so much rhyme. I don't like, not so much into sort of end rhyme, but into the, this idea about rhyme of it being um, a sort of connection between so words which sound the same, you know, they even though they may mean very different things, they have a sort of heritage that belongs together because of mm -hmm. that sound. And, you know, all of these things, which just I found really fascinating. Um, and, you know, as, as a scientist, I was a geneticist. So I think when I came to poetry, it was a similar process in the sense of I want to understand how this thing works and I want to get to the fundamentals of it and I really want to sort of understand it. So I think that's that's... You know, and I took that really seriously and, um, you know, I spent a good five, probably five years just really studying, um, studying form and trying to read and trying to, I think, catch up. Because one of the things is if you spend, you know, a good 10 years in science, uh, you feel, you know, I've, I've missed 10 mm. years of, of, of writing or, or of, um, you know, uh, study with language but actually as time has gone on what I do realize is that that's that's not actually true because what you do get is like a training in scientific language and scientific language is actually quite interesting to consider in relation to poetry um, and so I think that, I think actually it was quite a helpful process in the end to have gone through what I did yeah, wonderful. Thank you. Um, maybe we should jump 
I want to ask about the title to begin with. I mean, yeah. since we also mentioned your work as a gene in, in genetics, no, and there's this mm. wonderful kind of way in which the title picks up on. I mean, I noted down that in the, in a way, Wilder recovers or reintroduces a, a kind of something that's there in 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 the, in 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 the word. Um, so there's an epigraph to the book which begins. Um, by explaining that obviously we have wild from Old English, wield, welt, open fields or woodland, and wilder, which is this obsolete verb, which means to sort of lose one's way. And we were saying before, no, that we might also think of it as wilder, as in bewilderment, mm. bewilder, no, to be lost. Mm. Um, can you talk a bit about how you arrived at the title and, and what exchange it suggests between <clears throat> the poems and this idea of wilderness? Yeah, Um you know, I mean, arriving at the title of a, of, of a book is really interesting process in itself. Um, but you know, as we are kind of talking about here, there, there there are two titles for this book really, which sort of shadow each other. And one is Wilder, and one is Wilder. And the two of them, you know, they're both there. It's perfectly acceptable to to say Wilder instead of Wilder or whatever. Um, and I think you know there was. Part of me was interrogating, I think, uh, in a more general sense, just um, thinking about words like wild, thinking about words like nature, these sorts of, um, you know, world, earth, all of these words that we tend to use without necessarily interrogating them. Um, and particularly in relation um, with nature. So we like to say, you know, the natural world versus the human world, mm -hmm. as though you know, and, and behind that is this assumption that there is a difference between between the two. It sort of suggests that humans somehow are not natural, um, which, uh, you know, to me, that's an error in thinking. You know, this this is not uh, this is not true. This is not how it is. You know, humans are animals. Um, and so you could say that our civilization is natural in the sense that it would naturally arise um you know, just as you have ants with their and, and termites with the very complex societies, you know, these are sort of natural things which arise uh, in the, the animal world. So I wanted to sort of really, I was thinking about that division, which sort of lies behind, um, you know, the, the use of these words. And, you know, and how do you get around that? How do you talk about the natural world in a way that is inclusive of us um, as well? So I was really thinking about world and there's a brilliant book which I read a few years ago and they sort of came back to, which is the American poet uh, um, Gary Schneider, mm -hmm. uh, The Practice of the Wild. And he says this brilliant thing, which is, he said he talks about, well, for him, he makes a distinction between nature and wild. So he says nature basically is the subject of science. So, you know, we study biology and so that's growing things and living things and we study physics which is material things and so on but um wild is something else um and he said it can't be considered as an object or a subject but um must be admitted from within as a quality intrinsic to who we are and you know i just think that is absolutely it which is that this is what we sort of need to remember within ourselves, which is this wildness and that it is inherent to, to human beings as well as it is to, to everything um, around us. And that wildness is, you know, it's, it's, it's like in our imagination, it's in our language, um, you know, it comes up in us just as, you know, grass comes up within uh, gaps in the pavement. This is a sort of, it's a, imperative a process um and it's, it's that i think that i really wanted to sort of get into this the thing with the shadowing meaning so obviously being interested in this word you know you look at the etymology of it um and you know i i love old english words they have this um you know kind of deep rootedness they're very elemental you know, uh, sky and earth and, you know, oak and wild. And these, these things are very elemental. Um, but I was fascinated to find this verb, wilder, 
Um, and that connection, obviously, with the word we still do use, which is bewilder. Um, and there's something about wildering to me which sounds very organic because it's a sort of a wandering, growing type thing. And I think that sort of is a really interesting, particularly in the sense of getting lost, because one of the things I think that the book became about, and this is one of the things, you know, when you initially you're just writing individual poems, then you start to realise you're making something uh, which is a whole, which has, you know, it's an organic form comes in, which is the book as a whole. And, you know, the book um, seemed to be very much, I think, uh, you know, in favour of transformation um, and wanting to find ways to be wilder, but there were various ways to be wild. And, you know, you can be off the wall and off falling off the path, you know, like Dante uh, about to go into the Inferno. Or, you know, there's, so there's a sort of, almost a necessary element of getting lost, uh, particularly if one is to um, continue growing, which in a sense is the imperative of life. You know, life is not a static process. It's a growth and it's um, something that moves. Um, so I really like this idea that to get lost was necessary to that. So um, Rebecca Solnit's got a fantastic book about or getting lost, yeah, you know, yeah. that, that actually that if you never get lost, you don't, you never really live. And I think, you know, one of the things that climate change uh, and, and, you know, all of the crises which we face at the moment require us to change. And what is it in us that is resistant to change? How do we um, overcome that? What kind of things do we need to find in ourselves in order to reimagine um, what our lives might be and so for me that just really started to coalesce around this idea of wildering so going off the path um, mm -hmm. you know and to stay lost is is a sort of a is is a tragedy but to lose and to come back is actually a necessity in terms of recreating I think reimagining uh, yeah our, our future. And also I mean th this connects up to me uh ideas of kind of attention though and giving attention if wildering is a sort of i mean to be lost is also to be on the alert in a way and to start paying attention to ways back no so you sort of have to go through mm. this sense of 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 losing yourself um in order to then gain uh a new orientation if you like and the poems for mm. me really kind of explore that can we read um or can you read? <laughs> We're not going to read it together. <laughs> can you read um, the first, the opening poem for yeah. us, Marsh Thistle? Um, because I think actually it, it speaks to some of what we were just mm. um, talking about. Yes, very much so, I think. So Marsh Thistle. A gong sounds in the dark temple of the earth. And now upwards the thistle comes. Nothing sweet about this consonance of purple clusters this spray of green swords. Nothing sweet, but every part of it a soul, rising high above the soft earth between sea and stream in the farm's hinterland. And what soul is it that embellishes the sky with battlements and bristling lances? What part of a human soul is this thistle? The brave and fearful, lonely, frost-hardy, short-lived, adamant, stubborn, broken heart and bold heart and contradiction of spine, all the wounded and wounding glory of enduring, all the solitude of marrying a place, our native Holocene thistle, our unpalatable fen meadow, head above the crowd thistle, nectar-rich candelabra, rampant with bees, our crackle and frost of frets, our September wind-bloomed plume of thistle-down, connoisseur of spiny resurrection, it sows its sons and daughters back into taproot in the sinking ground, alone and fiercely it breaks the unknown meadow with its deep rooting and thistle intent. This is the thing done and logged among the reeds. This is the foot in water birth of the place present. And then the upwardness begins again. Amazing, thank you. 
Um, I mean, there's there's so there's a lot to say. First of all, I mean, just because you mentioned it earlier, no, all of the poems have this amazing, uh, I think, a kind of tension between old, very very old old English vocabulary lexis, and then quite Latinate, almost scientific kind of um, vocabulary. And that, I mean, even in a single line, like all the solitude of marrying a place, you know, these these things are kind of held alongside each other. And I'm also interested mm-hmm. in the the kind of rhetoric, um, uh, which is which is in the collection, you know, these very um, uh, kind of insistent and 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 uh, almost performative kind of constructions that take you through the logic of of, of some of the images you're 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 presenting us with. But th- what I actually wanted to ask you about with regards to this poem, Master This All, it, and it relates to something you were just saying also about kind of getting lost and finding yourself again. Is this this these images in the collection of going down and then up which really seems to organize a lot of um uh the poem so here i mean at the end of this poem now we have and then the upwardness begins again and the thistle is something that's rooted in the earth but shooting upwards towards the the eye of Mm. um of the of the poem um and for me it's a kind of a question about form no because there's a sense in which when we read you're reading downwards along the page, but you're also being directed back upwards constantly by, um, uh, by by certain connections, potentially rhymes that you find. I don't know if that if that if that holds for you, um, but uh, could you talk to us a little bit about about this down up movement that we get across the poems? That's interesting. I mean, because it's it's not something that you know, I've thought about in relation to the poems themselves, but it makes total sense. And actually there's a there's a poem in the book, uh, Verticality, which yeah. is almost all about this, which, you know, and so that's talking about a tree, you know, and a tree grows in its own sort of time scale and it's, it roots down and it comes up. Yeah, basically that's right. And it's sort of saying that kind of process, um, you know, applies also to us, I guess, which is that, the idea that if we don't excavate our roots, if we're not willing to go down, you know, like Dante into the underworld, you know, mm-hmm. there's how, you know, this is the thing with, with life, unless you have death, unless you have composting and you have, you know, this gong sounding in the dark temple, which is the, you know, the movement within which is unseen and which is in the earth. And that then gives rise um, to the tree, to the poem, you know, to our lives, um, to our health and our well-being. Um, and I think there's also, I mean, there is a sort of, uh, I mean, it just reminds me slightly, there's, you know, when I'm editing poems, um, there's a thing that happens in particular when you put lots of poems together in a book and those poems start to sort of talk to each other. And one of the things, you know, you find sometimes, because this is when you find, you know, what have I been obsessing about for so long? You know, um, you find similar words coming up, similar themes and all the rest of it. Um, but sometimes you will have, say, a poem which has the same word or the same sort of phrase as another one. So you think, well, OK, and these poems maybe are next to each other in the book. So only one of them can own that phrase. Mm-hmm. Um and it's a bit like when you find a sort of knot in the language when you're editing and something's just not quite right. And you think, well, I really need to to interrogate this part uh, of the poem. And those places, so either you've got to take something out because it's too like some, you know, another poem and you decide that's the poem that really owns that phrase. Or you get one of these knots and you think it's just not as clear as it should be. These places uh, are kind of like doors which open. Be, you know, they're places you can go down. I think that's what the process feels to me. I can go down into these places. And it's interesting you mentioned attention earlier on because it's sort of like you, know, you need to really listen at that place in the poem to find actually what, what needs to be found. And that is you know, a process of discovery. And that's actually the most exciting thing you you know with writing uh, and poems in particular is that actually where where the poems having you you as a writer having the most difficulty being able to see clearly those are the places 
that actually give you this opportunity to make discoveries, I think, because you if you enter those and you are really sort of committed to to listening and listening to what the other the poem is saying, um, you know, that's that's how you come to to rewrite edits and you know, ultimately actually come to things like the title because that's where it comes from, sort of really excavating um, that process. So I I think probably it's true. I think you've picked out something which is, you know, maybe actually quite central to the way that I work, which is this sort of um, very much like the tree, you know, booting and, and growing. How long... Uh... I mean, I know it might be difficult to say a kind of clean beginning and a clean end, but how long was the were you working on the collection? I mean, and it's interesting to hear you say that you know at some point the poems kind of take over once you start to place them alongside each other. The they're speaking across to each other, mm. and and you're kind of helping them <laughs> arrange themselves in a way. But I'm just curious about the, the the length of the or when did you know that you might have a collection from these from these poems? Um, yeah, I think the first thing I said, wasn't it, about persistence. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 you know, I, I do take a long time to write. Um, that's um, by which I mean complete poems, complete the book. Um, so, you know, uh, the first book took me probably 10 years and this one, you know, probably similar, maybe maybe a little bit quicker, but that's probably because some of those, you know, some of the pieces will have been you know, in process, um, even back when I was writing the first book. So I think, you know, it takes a long time and um, it's very easy to be quite impatient with stuff. And the other thing I think is, is you know, when I say about these doors which open, but it's also like when you come across a text and you think, you know, I don't really know what's in this text or whether it's of anything interesting. And sometimes you can look at text and go, I really know there's a poem in there and I need to find it. And you have that sort of tingly feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, even in sort of what is perhaps, un, um, you know, unexciting prose or very sort of mundane stuff, because this is how I work, which is I write an awful lot of material, still sort of doing this kind of journaling process. And then I use that as raw material for poems. Okay. Um, so you come might come across a text and you think, well, I don't really know what's in this. Um, but actually, if you're willing to excavate it and take the time to excavate um, material, there's often things there which you really would not have realised. And one of the ways, uh, a particular method which I use from time to time, used to use a lot more. Um, but I do still use it, uh, is to collage. And what I will do is use my own material and I will, you know, put three bits of text together. I will literally cut them up into individual words. So you lose, you know, you're breaking the original syntax, everything. And you basically just lay the words, all the words out. And and, um, I start working with that. And that means that you'll, you know, you you can come across very unexpected things in that text and um, things that make absolute sense and actually sort of more truthful than the thing that you'd originally written. And one of the ways in that, in that, that happens, I think, is to follow the music. So for me, this, this following, you know, the music of the poem has always been really important. Because I think when you set out, um, say, this sort of collage on the desk, you think that's quite a visual process, but it isn't. It's actually a very oral process because what makes what attracts one word to another is the sound. So, um, you know, to, to do that work, I actually need to wear headphones. And, you know, I need to block out the oh, noise okay, of okay. the world. You, know, you have to sort of really listen to the words that you have um lay down and I think you know not just with collaging I mean I think even you know just now with editing generally that's um you know how I'm proceeding which is uh to try and listen uh to the music Mm. it's fascinating can we um read another one potentially Mm. um I mean we've been talking a little bit about this idea of attention I mean and even that Mm. process that you just described obviously is a kind of exercise in attentiveness, no? Um, yeah. And I, I wanted to ask you to read um, Peacock Butterfly Late. Um, mm. 
because I think it, it it reads to me almost as a sort of in a quiet way as a manifesto for some of <laughs> these ideas of attention that are in the in the rest of the the collection also um mm. yeah okay peacock butterfly late late autumn and the butterfly under the black oaks is busy and overdue hurry hurry the nettles already sleep the ferns are bronzed and stiff the Amanita's taut red caps have surfaced among the roots of the pines. Necessity sets her to her task. And well might we ask, which kind of fragility will be lost first? The slow attention that breeds gentleness, or the butterfly's strong, frail pulse? See the articulate lightness, and little more than the weight of a dance the soundless doors of her wings breathing, and closed the archaic soft body inhales again, and opened her owl eyes startle with their exquisite deception. And these two states, opening and closing, hinged one on the other, flicker in thesis and antithesis, an old film fluttering on its reel. And we have the, the doors there also that we were... That we were that you were describing um mm. so this thing about attention i mean there's uh there's a lot of attention given these days to the idea of poetry as attention you know because we mm. sort of notoriously live in a very distracted time and so the idea of the, the poem as a sort of mechanism uh almost even to some degree that can sort of train you in a certain kind of attention is very uh powerful and, and and current and kind of talked about which seems to me right in a certain sense but also you know I don't know if attention is kind of uh inherently always as you describe it gentle or inherently always um uh you know the sort of a positive uh caring I mean I'm not I'm just not sure that that attention is necessarily always um so sort of ethical, I suppose we could say. I can think of other forms of attention which, which are more uh, sinister. No, so um, for you, is is does does this does any of this kind of ring true? Do you do you think of poetry also as a, as a reader as something that is a kind of practice in 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 attention? And does that speak to a to a certain ethical perspective kind of necessarily following on from 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 that giving and, and training of, of, of attention in the poem i mean i think what attention does is it fosters listening and mm. um and i think so for you know for example um during lockdown with covid um i did a lot of trying to go out you know doing lots of walks like many people but I was trying to go out and, and actually pay attention uh, as much as I could to whatever I found as I was walking um, or actually just being in the garden or whatever, you know, and I would sit, say, for example, sitting under a tree. And, you know, some people kind of call this mindfulness. I think mindfulness is, is not dissimilar, um, but you really are just sort of, you know, listening to where you are because we're well, paying attention. But for me, I think attention always comes back to listening. And so sitting under a tree in the summer, you know, the thing is the sound of the tree and it's the sound of the tree and it's in relation to what else might be going on faintly. But the more that you listen, you know, the wider your field of attention. So it kind of grows. And I think what you end up with is um, a better ability to hear uh, maybe what is different, what is other, what is not familiar, or what it's very easy to overlook, perhaps. You know, that to stop, to pay attention and to listen, you know, it, it's actually quite, I think, a radical act because it's, you know, I think it leads to the possibility of transforming your outlook. Um, and you know, it's it's both healthy from a personal point of view, but I think it's also, you know, it's part of almost in a sense the work which we need to do at the moment, which is to understand the other. So if we um, you know, the other 
can be many things. But if we're talking about the natural world, for instance, you know, if we are better able to identify with the natural world or think of it not as a separate thing to ourselves, then it's more likely that we can respond in empathetic ways and give things like rivers rights and, you know, things which have no voice um, to still value them and, and give them sort of a, a sense of equality, um, sense of importance. Um, so I think, you know, the other thing as well, you know, just in terms of kind of technique again uh, with attention is, I think if there's a quote um, by Ted Hughes, he said that heightened awareness brings language or draws language towards itself. And the kind of language actually that it draws towards itself is poetry. Um, very much, you know, sort of naturally. So it's almost like the natural um, language that you hear in the world is musical and it is rhythmical and it is also, you know, and it may be dissonant also, uh, but it's just, you know, I think almost the task of the poet is to be in that heightened awareness, state of heightened awareness, more than anything else, to sort of to, to be able to manage that, to concentrate that, to, to not come out of it too quickly. Um, because, you know, well, certainly for me and my process, it is all about listening, I think. The more and more I think about it is, the more it's about listening and, um, you know, sort of transforming your hearing. It's not just about what you hear, it's transforming the process by which you hear things um, and I think this comes back to what I was trying to say really about wilder or wildness in ourselves this sort of inherent um, quality and Gary Schneider actually um, that I mentioned earlier he you know he does see this as an ethical thing because he said that you know to, to spend time in wilderness and obviously there's an issue with us being able to access wilderness mm -hmm. in the modern world but if you spend time in wilderness it, it it teaches you about humility and it teaches you about not following, you know, the ego. And it teaches you about restraint and all of these things, which sort of come naturally because you, you know, you, it's very hard in modern life to see and, and experience directly how we are connected and how what we do directly affects everything else, but also how we're affected by other things too. So the, experience of sitting under a tree is very calming and very is actually good for our health and all that sort of thing you actually have to stop and do that um so you know he's saying that that that's you know sort of almost there's a sort of natural ethics which comes from being in nature for want of a better word um so you know yes i think i probably do value this attentiveness um as as a tool for transformation mm. And also, it's interesting because it's not an attention that is sort of, e the, 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 there's not the kind of the ego at the center no, that's receiving this stuff. It's almost kind of decentering yourself now and making yeah. room. Uh, because that's one of the other, I mean, a lot of what you just described kind of touches on, I guess, concerns or um, you know, themes in uh, eco-poetry, eco-criticism, you know. And I wanted to know about kind of your relationship with those those terms and if i can put it to you like this because I, I i recognize everything you just described but i come up against mm. language um which to me is uh human which isn't to say it's not natural because as we've just kind of described you know uh, we're part of the the world um mm. and there's always this tension i feel in also in this collection though between um this fine line between giving giving voice to nature um, without using a human as a sort of norm or a center or a, a you know the, the measure of 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 the natural mm. world and it's it, it's i think it's incredibly difficult to do that um in mm. in a way that uh that that manages to other the human rather than other the 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 thing being described you know that's the kind of that's the kind of challenge and to do that in mm. language at its most languagey in poetry is uh is is 
is kind of remarkable and really difficult. So I, I was just wondering about your relationship with with um, with kind of eco poetry or or, or eco criticism and and what is it that those that that work does? Is it kind of translate the natural into um, language, or is it like we've kind of mentioned about making strange the human? Um, yeah. Mm. Mm. Uh, I mean, I think it's, you know, it, it's an important and interesting question, you know, and how do you voice uh, the non-human? And of course, you know, at the end of the day, we are human. So actually the only way in which we can approach things is through our human qualities, you know. And But I do think, you know, there's a sort of, uh, you know, back before that, there's a sort of... Um, you know, so we say language is, you know, this uniquely human thing. Well, you know, as a biologist, you don't, you know, you know that that's not true. So language is uh, an inherent part of life and um, animals and plants and, and fungi, they all communicate with each other um, in many different ways. And even if they don't have, you know, the means to speak in the way that we do, that doesn't mean that they're not communicating or have language or transmitting information between themselves. So I sometimes have this sort of slightly queasy feeling, you know, when we say things like language are uniquely human, because mm -hmm. I kind of think, mm, you know, I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> you know, and certainly the capacity for language exists um, in in other organisms, and you know, if and and certainly within primates, you know, if they had a different structure to their throats, they'd probably be able to vocalise, um, you know, with the complexity that we do. It's not that the, the cognitive process isn't necessarily there. So, and actually, you know, you're saying the, the, about um, poetry as as the most sort of human language, you know, languagey. Uh, but actually, I, I, I do sort of wonder actually whether it's the other way around, which is that poetry is the most wild of the language. You know, this is the language growing like grass, you know, up between the cracks in the pavement. This, that poetry is more, you know, is less constructed and more um, open. Um, I mean, Alice Oswald, actually, I mean, in terms of talking about trying to write the non-human. Alice Oswald is, is very interesting on this, and she's obviously said quite a bit about it. Um, and her book, Darts, where she writes about the river, and, you know, she's trying to find a voice for the river, um, you know, and how do you, how do, you do that? How do you, um, you know, one of the ways perhaps is to get past the eye, is to not have the personal eye as this sort of big barrier. You have to sort of try and look beyond that. But one of the interesting things I think about Dart is that she actually also does lots of interviews with humans, you know, with with people who who live and work on the river. And I think, um, you know, that's really sort of interesting because, you know, what it sort of says is that it's not that we will need to cancel out human voices. It's to say that, you know, this division between, uh, you know, nature and the, and the human you know, it's an intellectual construct mm -hmm. and it's not actually our lived experience. And our lived experience as human beings is a very complex entanglement, whether we realise it or not. You know, it's like um, you know, the French philosopher Bruno Latour, he used to talk about this. Um, he's got great videos on, on YouTube, you know, of his lectures and stuff and about inside. He's got this concept of inside. You know, we don't live on a planet. Uh, we don't live you know, somewhere looking down on this planet right, right. sort of separate from us. You know, we are inside it. I mean, he says, like, you know, we're still in Plato's cave. We're still there. You know, we are still, we are actually, um, you know, so entangled in this world. Um, you know, that that there isn't, you know, that there is both difference and otherness in the sense of not every animal is set up like a human being. You know, they might see other things, different frequencies, different kind of light, all of these things. Their experience of life might be quite different. But actually, at the, at the heart of it, we are, we are all the same. We're all living on the planet. We all have DNA. We've all come from the same, you know, uh, 
original uh, life on this planet. And so there's respect for otherness and also an understanding, I think, of the fact that we're actually not different either. You know, there's a sort of paradox here, which, um, you know, so I think that feeds back, you know, it's, it's not easy, but I think it feeds back into what you're saying. Um, and, you know, so much, you know, eco-criticism and so on, it's, it's, you know, it's given us things like, you know, um, interrogation, think words like nature and so on, which is so, you know, it's so important to do that, to really think about how we're using that language. Um, but, you know, I just, I think also we have to remember that we are massively and entirely entangled in this world. And so we can't get past that. But also that's a good thing because we are, you know, to think like a human is not so dissimilar to think perhaps as an animal thinks, mm. uh, you know, and likewise and vice versa, actually. Can I ask you <clears throat> a very kind of banal practical question, which is, are you, where, where do you write from? I don't mean that in a Latorian kind of way, but just literally, <laughs> are you always writing from the same place I mean, you mentioned this this process of also journaling. I guess that happens mm. in different places. Yeah. Yeah, uh, place. I mean, you know, uh, I, to come back to attentiveness again, uh -huh. I guess, which is that one of the things I find, um, you know, with attentiveness is that and and listening as as practices, you know, they place you. Um, so you're placed, I guess in your psyche in the sense of I am trying to seek a place where I am aware of my connection and where I'm not a big ego and I'm listening. Um, but sort of naturally what arises also is an interest in your surroundings, an interest in the naming that's taken place of your surroundings, you know, the, specific, the specificities of where you are, you know, what kind of tree are you sitting under? What's that kind of leaf? What is, you know, what's the name for that kind of leaf? How is this tree breathing? How is this tree, you know, um, feeding itself? How's the sap going up and down? You know, um, where does the Latin name for this tree come from? You know, all of these things. And where am I actually within, you know, the village I live and then near the town I live and so on? I think there's a sort of, uh, there's a sort of placelessness, which is to be, in this particular place in the mind, which is to lose the personal. And then there's also this heightened interest, I think, then that naturally arises with your specific surroundings. Um, mm. And I find that a really interesting process because that happens naturally. You know, it's like Ted Hughes's heightened awareness naturally draws this language, um, you know, to itself. And um, I think the process of attentiveness naturally draws place to you as well hmm. and can i ask it's, it's kind of uh related i suppose this there's quite a f not all of them at all that would be too much but quite a few of the poems move from this let's say kind of establishing a place i don't want to say setting because that's not quite right but there's you know attention given to place and then towards the end sometimes this you emerges so there is this kind of turn towards a figure or, or uh, uh, a, a person who's kind of, again, I'm being careful, but in that landscape that we've, that we've been um, immersed in. And I was wondering if that, if, if you, well, had noticed that yourself or if that's something that um, uh, arose like kind of in, in the drafting process or, yeah, what is this, this you who sometimes comes in, as I put it, kind of late, in the in the poems <laughs> well it's funny i hadn't really sort of thought of it like that um but i suppose you know sometimes i think it is just to acknowledge that there you know look there is a human observer in all of this um to sort of acknowledge that fact uh and you know i do i do use you particularly in this book i think because i'm sort of trying to get away from the i as dominance, I'm trying to sort of make, you know, it's a more sort of general, um, I suppose, observation, not to say that we would all have the same experience of something, but it, just to sort of get away from that um, dominance, I guess. But 
you know, you, at the end of the day, as I say, you know, you have to acknowledge that you are a human who is, um, you know, not not obviously not just observing, uh, interacting and taking part, but it is through human senses, eyes, language. Objects so. also. I mean, I should say that it's not always a kind of you, but at the end of Shadows and Warriors, no, there are these two blue pet chairs placed yes. in the shade of an olive tree. So there's sometimes just this kind of shift yeah. that the poem does onto a, a, a detail which 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 often is connected to let's say kind of the human world mm. in quotations heavy quotation marks which mm. i found really interesting um i think we have time can you read one one more for us uh sure. maybe the honorable guitar they're all from quite early on in the collection i should say mm. um mm. on page five it is yeah yeah, okay. I mean, this is an interesting poem, actually, because it's, you know, trying to write about music and, uh, you know, how do you translate music purely into language? Um, but, you know, Rodrigo, this is his, it's after his Concierto de Aranjuez, and, you know, he was blind, so he was trying to write music about these lovely gardens that he couldn't see. So, you know, he's already doing this, trying to translate uh, an experience through these different forms. Um, so the Honourable Guitar, music begins in the throat, it begins like regret, soft, quiet, adagio, in the second movement already, grief flowering where joy had walked in magnificent gardens, the fragrance of magnolias, the singing of birds, the blind man said, as the fountain's mouth spilled over into the echoing chamber of rosewood, molto appassionato, the trials of skin against vibration, and the music paces, backs down, breaks off, breaks down, speaks, is silent, then grows again. It is accompanied, it is alone, the heart cut to strings in its dark room. Thank you. Um, can I ask if you're working on a particular project at the moment? Um... Yes, I mean it's always interesting after you've finished a book because oh. you sort of think, well, where am I going next, and, and what thread am I going to follow next? And um, you know, as you had mentioned to me about kind of different kind of form and so on, I think probably sort of more open form, open field type work. Um, I'm sort of interested in writing from a more sensual point of view, sort of developing some of these ideas that we've been talking about today. Um, and actually sort of I kind of tried writing a, a memoir about a year ago and um, you know being the poet I am I was very dissatisfied with the prose but I now have you know 200 pages to collar it's so material, you know that's yeah. going to take yeah. a while yeah it's all good material so I'll be reading that okay uh, I think over the next few months yeah okay yeah. great thank you so much Gemma it's been it's been a real pleasure talking to you yeah, and to you. Thank you so much for asking me to do this.